Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight that we're about to turn to. And we thank you not only for your wisdom, not only for your instruction, but that everything that you write in this book to us is motivated by a great love for us and concern for our lives. Thank you for your love for us tonight, Lord, each one of us. As Pastor Mike has already prayed, what an awesome thing to stop it. What is this kind of minor, uh, in, in the light of eternity, kind of a, a, something that we walk through, the end of a year and the beginning of a new, but to look back and see your faithfulness. We made it. Here we are. All your promises were yea and amen. And uh, entering into a new year with all of it. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit tonight and give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word this evening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Good evening. Please be seated. Boy, that was... Normally I'll ignore it, but I just couldn't on that one. That was... Acts chapter 19 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Just while we're finding ourselves our way there, just a reminder that some of you may or may not be aware, there's a little article on, in the Modesto B on it with uh, the ACARDs down in Southern California and specifically Michael and uh, Elisha are going to be playing the bagpipes in the Rose Bowl Parade tomorrow, so yes, representing the kingdom of God. And uh, in a lesser way, Calvary Modesto. So, uh, but apparently they'll be in the kind of early part of the parade. So if you want to kind of tape it or something and uh, say uh, to all of your neighbors, I know somebody uh, in the parade, you can do that. But to be in prayer for them, what a great experience for them. We'll look to have you home tonight being uh, uh, New Year's Eve before all of the bullets and the rockets uh, start to fall. Uh, you have never, ever uh, quite seen uh, New Year's Eve or, or Fourth of July, for that matter, uh, unless you have the opportunity to drive through Stockton. Uh, it looks like um, Benghazi or something. I don't know what. I don't know where they get those fireworks, and the whole city seems like it is uh, uh, lit up and. Uh, like a dystopian movie or something, but uh, we'll look to uh, get you home well before that. I don't know how many of you stay up. Curtis and I were talking before we came out, not, not any kind of a, a deep conversation, but about staying up till midnight or whatever. I think I have twice in my life. It's just not worth it to me. I mean, once we eat the chips and the French onion dip, it's, there's really no reason to stay up any beyond that. And... Uh, but I'm, I'm glad if you do that. As we come here to chapter 19, it's a, kind of an odd place to put a chapter break. I don't complain about it, but it is. Uh, Paul uh, returns home from his second missionary journey in chapter eight, is it 18 rather, as it's recorded for us. And uh, the beginning of his third missionary journey is detailed for us in verse 23 of that uh, chapter. And the early part of Paul's third missionary journey uh, was spent uh, revisiting the cities that he had established to make sure they're doing okay on his two previous missionary journeys. Then, as we saw last time, there is this uh, uh, character study that is brought before us in uh, the form of Apollos. And then now, um, in earnest, there is the, uh, the description of Paul's ministry in uh, establishing a church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, he would, the Apostle Paul, in going to Ephesus there, he, it wasn't his first time there. You might remember upon leaving and uh, uh, heading back for home, ascending church of Antioch uh, during, uh, I I at the end of his second missionary journey, he 
stopped for a short period of time in Ephesus. They wanted to stay, him to stay longer, but he needed to move uh, home and on to Jerusalem and, and wasn't able to do, but he said, God willing, I'll get back. And God was willing, and he, he came back, and here it is. Uh, the Apostle Paul will spend uh, three years of his uh, missionary journey, ministry life, establishing the church in Ephesus. It's an astonishing block of time that is invested in the planting of this church. Everybody who's remotely familiar with the Bible recognizes the church of Ephesus, the letter written to the Ephesians. Ephesus mentioned is the first of the seven uh, letters of Jesus to the seven churches there in Asia Minor and so forth. So it was a very, very prominent church that ended up being established uh, uh, there. And, uh, and so uh, the second place in terms of what city he spent the most time in establishing a city and in a, a very much a, di uh, a distant second was the city of Corinth at 18 months, half the time, and most of them far less than that. And so a very significant part of, of his ministry and history for our understanding of, of the, the New Testament. And while it happened, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, verse 1, Apollos, remember, had left Ephesus where uh, Aquila and Priscilla had instructed him more completely in uh, the ways of the Lord, and he had received that in his humility, being teachable. He then made his way uh, to Corinth, and uh, after Apollos had left Corinth, then Paul, uh, passing through the upper regions, he then came to Ephesus, and he found there some uh, disciples. And he said to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist. And then uh, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him, on Messiah, who would come after him, that is, after John the Baptist, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, uh, all of this was remedied. Uh, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's a word worth circling or underlining. Uh, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 um, in, uh, in all. And so here uh, is this uh, kind of odd uh, uh, encounter of the Apostle Paul with uh, what is commonly referred to as incomplete Christians uh, there in the city of, uh, of Ephesus. Now, uh, his interaction here uh, with them, somehow he interacts with them and immediately a question poses in his mind in terms of the encounter that he has with them. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, Paul clearly notices something uh, lacking in their uh, Christian life, the dynamic of their Christian life, uh, and, uh, and something that he could trace back to, uh, uh, something that uh, is not there in its full form in terms of what the Holy Spirit is intended to bring into our lives, namely the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, how this gets interpreted uh, two different kind of major interpretations of this passage in this event, and it gets interpreted on the basis of how a Christian usually, how a Christian views uh, a, a second um, uh, experience with the Holy Spirit uh, being possible after conversion, namely the baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about in uh, Acts chapter 1, and uh, talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, having power to be a witness unto Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, giving us a power to live for Christ 
in any environment in the world, no matter how dark, no matter how not dark it is or whatever it is, here's the power to live a dynamic Christian life as Christianity is defined here in the Scriptures and, uh, and to live that no matter what the environment is that God takes us into. And he notices something lacking in them. Now, those that look and say, well, when a person comes, uh, becomes a Christian, then they receive everything of the Holy Spirit in that moment in time. And there is no subsequent uh, experience of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. They will interpret this as saying uh, that the Apostle Paul uh, simply ran into a group of 12 men who thought they were Christians, but they were ill-informed and they weren't. And so now they become Christians under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Those who believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives to give us that power to live for Christ, uh, can uh, happen subsequent to the salvation, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and being born again, are able to look at the passage in my mind, these are not equal arguments in my mind, able to look at this passage and just kind of uh, accept it for what it is and then accept the teaching of what it's intended uh, to teach to us. Remember in terms of, I would suspect, I mean it would be my guess in my interactions with the body of Christ that the overwhelming majority of Christians when they surrender their lives to the Lord, the Holy Spirit uh, is, uh, was with them before they were Christians, para. Uh, he comes in them now as a, a part of being born again. You can't be born again without the Holy Spirit coming into our lives because that's what becoming a Christian is. It's a spiritual birth. And, uh, and so the Holy Spirit comes in and that this, uh, that this uh, upon experience, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person, that that probably happens in most Christians all at the same time. I don't have any argument with that at all. Um, but it can happen, the baptism with the Holy Spirit can happen subsequent to being born again. And, and it can happen very much in the circumstances that we find in this passage. Remember in, when the Apostle Paul, when he uh, was Saul of Tarsus at that time, he is knocked off his high horse on his way to uh, Damascus to persecute the church there. He confesses Jesus as Lord on the road to Damascus. He is born again at that uh, point in time. But it isn't until some time later that Ananias comes directed by the Holy Holy Spirit lays hands upon him, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him. The, this dynamic of, of the Holy Spirit, this power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, we saw the same thing go on. It was a subsequent experience that occurred. We see it in the apostles uh, on the night before Jesus's, uh, on the night of Jesus's crucifixion, uh, or resurrection rather. He breathes upon them, says, receive ye the Holy Spirit, but it would be many days afterward that they would receive the upon experience, the Holy Spirit coming upon them uh, on the day of Pentecost. So uh, as a student of the Bible, we have to acknowledge that this is at least a possibility, uh, if for no other, biblically for sure, but if for no other reason than to give hope to uh, this kind of Christian that is described here. He sees something lacking in their life. That should be the part of every Christian's life who has been baptized with the Holy Spirit, has this power in their life. The interesting thing is, is that the Holy Spirit gives us no revelation in terms of what that is. We look and say, well, they were lacking this or they were lacking that or whatever. I think the reason that uh, we aren't told is we'd make a formula out of that. And then we'd turn that into an evidence that you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. We'd goof it up somehow. Uh, but clearly here, there's, uh, they're, they're missing something, a power in their lives. Maybe they're missing uh, a love for God, a zeal for God, a love for the world and the souls of men and women around uh, us that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives, a joy that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives, an ability to worship God in spirit and in truth uh, with joy rather than reading the bulletin for the hundred time uh, during the worship part of the service and song. And so the Holy Spirit brings all of this dynamic, this intimacy 
intimacy with God, but then power to live this, uh, this life. They were missing that. Um, I don't have any problem with accepting this as a truth biblically, but then also experientially related to my own life. Uh, for a portion of my uh, youth, my mother took uh, us as kids and uh, took us to a, a church in Napa, California, Plymouth Brethren Church. Enormous respect for the Word of God. I, I am thankful for my heritage uh, there at that church and the attitude that it gave me uh, of, of respect for the Word of God because of their respect for it and the power of it. But they weren't so hip to this baptism with the Holy Spirit kind of thing. And so when I go into adult life and then I ultimately become a Christian, I'm I'm poorly taught in that regard at that moment in time. And so knowing that I'm born again, but not knowing there is this baptism with the Holy Spirit to bring a power into my uh, life as a result of, of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, I endeavored, I was born again, I knew that, but now my understanding of Christianity was you're born again and now you obey the Scriptures in your own strength and in your own power, uh, however much of a drudgery it might be. And uh, that was my understanding of it until I went to a Calvary Chapel in uh, the city of, of Napa at about 25 years old and uh, they were talking about the Holy Spirit this and the Holy Spirit that, not even remotely kind of a Pentecostal or something like, uh, uh, like that where it's like one-dimensional the church is toward the Holy Spirit. Um, but they, they spoke so naturally related to the place of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. And, and I realized I was missing this power. I was missing this joy. This was, this was hard work to be a Christian and uh, rolling up my sleeves and trying to keep uh, the word, uh, the commands of God in this word. And then when uh, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, comparatively evil compared to God, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so I uh, asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and prayed for that. An entire uh, dynamic came into my Christian life. Everything changed. Uh, the blues were bluer and the greens were greener. Um, I don't know, remember if, I don't know how many of you remember, I know a lot of you don't remember, but there used to be a commercial uh, on TV when I was a kid, and it went something like uh, this. It was something like this. Wow, I got a color TV, the eyes so blue. The okay. Anyway, anybody remember that? Just a little quick show of hands. Nobody. Am I making this up from my childhood or what? Nobody's going to believe me. One person, please, somebody. Oh, there we go. Thank you, Jennifer. You knew all along and you left me hanging here. Okay, boy, what an audience. It's a tough crowd tonight. So, but dramatic change now. And, and now um, to move forward in the completeness of, of the provision of the Holy Spirit related to our Christian lives. And what appears has happened here in this situation is that you've got people who are Christians, but they're poorly taught. Uh, and most especially poorly taught related to the Holy Spirit. And that's not an unusual thing uh, at all for people even in churches that teach a lot sometimes. Well, certainly the most neglected uh, person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit uh, after the Father and the Son. And so you can, you can remain in this condition of thinking this is something I do in my own strength and I guess I just have a joyless Christianity and God seems so far away from me all the time and always has and, and we come to accept that because we haven't been taught well related uh, to this. I think that it's, it's compelling evidence here in this that uh, the Holy Spirit describes these uh, 12 men in verse 1 as being disciples. 
and then Paul asks them the question at the beginning of verse 2. So they're clearly disciples of Christ. Uh, and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the word believe that Paul uses here is the same word that Jesus uses for in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That question, it's inconceivable that the Apostle Paul would pose a question uh, 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 like that if he didn't, if he was talking about their salvation. I mean, Paul, if anybody knew this is how you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. And clearly he's talking about this upon experience, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's why you see there in verse 6, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, not in them. That was not the need in their life. They were disciples. They had believed. But they were missing this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, and so the Holy Spirit then comes upon them, and that's very significant. Then they spoke with tongues, and, and, they, uh, and they prophesied. Um, some, I'm, I'm on the, the alert. Whenever I talk with a person, and um, the first thing I want is I want them to be born again. So I'm determining, are they a Christian or are they not a Christian? Because if they're not a Christian, then I'm certainly not going to talk with them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit before they become a Christian. So we're going to talk about salvation. But once a person uh, it, it declares themselves to be a Christian, and, and, then, uh, and then if I see that they're a Christian life, or they talk to me and they declare, my Christian life is one of total defeat, um, I cave to every sin, they might say, that comes my way. I have no power uh, against it. I have no joy uh, in, my, in my life. And, uh, and, and this is what characterizes uh, my life. And, and as I will listen to that, now what I want to ask them as a Christian is, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Have you received this power uh, for the asking uh, to live a life like Christ, a promise from Jesus Himself, no matter how hard the environment might be uh, that we uh, find ourselves in. And then very often they're ill-taught related to this, and, uh, uh, and then there's a chance to talk with them about that and pray uh, uh, with them uh, for that. Clearly, in this passage... The Apostle Paul, it is not enough for the Apostle Paul to look and say, all right, they're in. They're Christians. They got, that, they got the eternal um, kind of life insurance or fire insurance related to things. We'll, we'll be happy with that. No need to worry about uh, this, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. No, for him, a Christian was incomplete, though born again, incomplete, until this had occurred in their lives, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so I don't know how many Christians in the world today or how many Christians in this room or sound of my voice or whatever it is that, that uh, don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, or they just accept everything as just salvation and then you just kind of uh, muddle through because they're ill-taught on the subject. But for the Apostle Paul, when he ran into it, he addressed it. What's going on here? This is not a Christian life that, that I know Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day to provide to us. Tell me about your experience with the Holy Spirit, what you know about Him. They said, we don't know anything about Him. We've never even heard about the Holy Spirit and, and that whole realm of the Christian life. So Paul said, well, how... How did you get baptized if you never heard about the Holy Spirit? Now, he didn't chuckle at him, but it, it's ironic to me. And because Jesus had said in the Great Commission, going out, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Surely, if you were water baptized, you heard about the Holy Spirit. They said, no, we weren't water baptized subsequent to becoming a Christian. We were water baptized by John the baptizer. But John the Baptist's baptism was one of baptizing people as a, 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 an expression of their heart. 
that Messiah is coming. We know that He's coming. I'm looking forward to Him coming. And so then Paul comes, lays hands uh, on them, and then they, the fullness of the Christian life becomes theirs. You don't need to be a pastor to help people in this regard. Uh, anywhere that we are in, in life as Christians, and we see somebody that's just getting pounded, whether in spiritual warfare or whatever it might be, and saying, you know, we may not say it in these terms. I'd have to think about how to say it just so. But in my experience, in understanding the Bible, you're missing a dynamic in your Christian life. And God's got that for you. Have you ever heard about the baptism with the Holy Spirit? I've never even heard that there is. I was water baptized. I don't know anything about the water bap- uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then to say, listen, if you ask, God will do it. Whether you understand it all or not, you notice that the Apostle Paul, we will move on to other things, by the way. You notice that the Apostle Paul then didn't take them through a six-week class on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. They still didn't understand everything about it, but you don't wait till you understand everything about it to receive it. You receive it, uh, and then you head out into it and, uh, and uh, learn about the beauty of this uh, experience uh, as you go along. And so if any of us sit here tonight and you say, I've never known that power. My Christian life has been a struggle from day one. I have no joy in it. Uh, I fold like a... Uh, like anything in front of any kind of temptation, I disgust myself. I, I'm always defeated. And for you to stop and realize, then this is what you're looking for. And it's real. Paul isn't going to play head games with him. Oh, I'll do the whole baptism with the Holy Spirit thing on him, you know. And see, no, he's, this is there. And, and it's available. And so uh, after this experience with them, he then... Uh, uh, went into the synagogue there in Ephesus, and uh, uh, and he spoke boldly in 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 that synagogue for three months. Now think about that: uh, the synagogue there in uh, Ephesus gets turned over to the Apostle Paul, at least on some level, for him to teach for three months. That's a long time. And you notice what he did when he was given the opportunity uh, to speak there. Uh, in that synagogue, he reasoned and persuaded concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So he is, he, he, he reasoned and he persuaded. He had two things in mind. He reasoned, he was after their mind. And then he persuaded, he's after their will. And that's what Paul was after when he preached to people for the reason for them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He wanted their minds, first of all, to understand why He is the Messiah and then to move on to their will to then surrender to Him. And to know that about all biblical truth. And, and, and I think that this is very encouraging to me, talking about reasoning and persuading. Um, it, I am nothing else if I am not a Bible teacher. And so there is reasoning and persuading deliberately related to me teaching the Word of God. And, and sometimes that's too thorough for, uh, for some people, and they won't come here. And I'm, but I'm thankful for you that you do, and anybody else you pay and we pay to come in here to make this not look too, too empty. But for me, I cannot call on someone uh, as a leader in the church and call on someone to put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah or to believe a doctrine of the Bible without uh, reasoning with them, showing them at least why what God says is superior to anything that they believe or anything that the world is feeding us. And then to surrender my will to God's truth. To me, if that does not happen, I'm asking for blind faith of people. I can't do it. So I I have zero interest in emotionalizing a person into the kingdom of God or accepting God's truth. 
I want it to happen as a part of reasoning and persuading. I don't want somebody to say, uh, to be sitting here and uh, I'm telling stories about myself and telling uh, stories about kittens and they get all weepy and everything because they love kittens. And they say, all right, I, I accept Jesus as my Messiah and as my Savior. No, no more kitten stories, please. You've got me. Not interested in that at all. It's got to be something that's grounded in the will. I see it. That makes sense in a way that nothing else makes sense. God is smarter than everybody else. This is only the Creator could know us in this way. And then to surrender my will uh, to Him and to that truth. So those of you who are uh, teachers of the Word of God and and, uh, you have a bent in the same way for reasoning and persuading, uh, it's good to know that you're in the company of the Apostle Paul. We are not the Apostle Paul, uh, but to know that we're aiming for the same thing that, uh, that he was aiming at, and as the Bible affirms here. But some of them were hearted there in the synagogue, and they did not be, uh, believe. It doesn't say that they could not. They did not. And they spoke evil of the way, the way referring to Christianity before the multitude. And when that happened, this opposition grew up in the synagogue. Uh, Paul then, he departed uh, from the synagogue. He withdrew his disciples, and he moved into the school of Tyrannius, and he reasoned daily uh, with his disciples there uh, in that in that, uh, in that school. And so Paul just kind of uh, abandons uh, things there and uh, he, he leaves that situation, the opposition, and he goes into this school of Tyrannus. The, the word uh, Tyrannus here, it, it, it means, uh, I, I believe it means terrible. His name means terrible or something. Presumably his parents did not, uh, it actually means tyrant. Presumably his parents did not name him that, uh, but that's what he became known as, probably a teacher of rhetoric or a teacher of philosophy. Ah, there's the tyrant. And so, Probably a lot of teachers get a nickname from their students that students keep to themselves, and probably they did as well. It wasn't unusual in that culture in that day, not unusual in the modern culture, that someone like him would have uh, had uh, kept his classes on rhetoric or philosophy during the morning hours till about 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, heat of the day, come in at that point, uh, take off the entire afternoon, return in the evening, and continue the classes in the relative coolness of the evening. And so you'd have this entire afternoon block in which very difficult to keep people's attention for that kind of length of time uh, in, in that kind of heat. And so when the Apostle Paul approaches him about using it, he's happy to rent it out or whatever the arrangements were for Paul to be there. And so Paul does this uh, for uh, fully uh, two years. Someone has done the math related to this, and if he taught uh, five hours a day, six days a week, taking the Sabbath off for two years, it adds up to 3,120 hours of teaching. Imagine sitting under uh, that many hours of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. How uh, deep you'd become uh, in the Scriptures. If a, if a Christian were to attend church um, uh, one hour uh, a week and uh, uh, one hour of teaching at the church, it'd take them 60 years to get the kind of uh, exposure that they were getting uh, to the Word of God under the Apostle Paul in those two years. Really, uh, really would have been uh, something. And so there he is teaching, and again we see uh, the hard work working to, to do his tent making uh, in, uh, in the morning, then do the teaching in the afternoon, and then return to the tent making for his own support in the evening. Uh, this guy meant uh, business in, uh, in, in his ministry. Now, uh, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of the Apostle Paul. And the un- unusual miracles, one of them is listed here, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, these would have been sweat cloths. He was a tent maker. It's a hot part of the world. Uh, and so even handkerchiefs or aprons were uh, brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases then left them, and the evil spirits went uh, out of them. And so uh, important to realize that Ephesus was a, a, a stronghold 
of uh, just a satanic stronghold. It was the, uh, the kind of center for the uh, worship of uh, Artemis in the ancient world. She was, or Diana, she was the uh, uh, goes went by both names depending on whether you're referring as a Greek god or a Roman god, and um, and and uh, the she was the god of sex basically. Basically, so they had a, a temple uh, to her there in Ephesus. It is so great it was in the ancient world that it constituted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now that that's pretty elite company in terms of. Uh, the the architecture and the marble and all of that the, it, it was the, the size of the Parthenon uh, that still stands in uh, in Athens and so obviously the worship of her there at that temple uh, strongly involving um, I- involving uh, sexual immorality and, and and all, and we'll see it in a moment here, just a verse or two, uh, the demonic hold that was in that, uh, that city even uh, beyond that. So Paul is there, God, he's, he's teaching God's Word, and then what God does through these miracles is in that very stu- superstitious environment of, of that of part of the world at that time, God begins to do these miracles where it got the attention of the population. And it was God's way of confirming Paul's message to the population. Not everybody had a Bible where you could say, go home and start with reading uh, the gospel according to John. God meets us where we are to reach us and open up our eyes. Paul is preaching about Christ as the Messiah, preaching biblical truth. God comes along, does these miracles that none of their gods could do, and is getting everybody's attention. And most important, the message that Paul is preaching is getting uh, everybody's attention. It's interesting that, that, that this, uh, um, uh, this work of the handkerchiefs of the sweat cloths being taken from Paul and put on people who were sick, and then they were healed, and then, um, and then uh, uh, applied to people that were demon-possessed and the evil spirits left. It's referred to as unusual miracles. Well, miracles just by definition are unusual. <laughs> so why the double unusual here on this? And I, I think one of the reasons that he, he does that is, is in order to communicate that this, um, this isn't something that we should take this passage from the Bible and start a sweat cloth ministry. Uh, this was something for this situation. This was what God met him on, on that level. And, uh, but don't start a TV show and start sweating into cloths and sending to people for a $500 uh, donation. That shouldn't become uh, uh, something that we should always expect as a means of God confirming His Word with signs and wonders. And then as all of this is going on, and, and these, these demons are going out of people and and all the ministry of, of Paul as it's happening. Then there were some itinerant Jewish uh, exorcists. That's a kind of a fancy title, isn't it? You just see it right on a, on a business card, can't you? Itinerant Jewish exorcists. Or, or uh, uh, Ed Sullivan. And tonight we've got the itinerant Jewish exorcists with us tonight. And then we'll have the Beatles. And uh, so... Some of them took it upon themselves to call on the name, call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they did have in those days traveling exorcists. Uh, it was very much like the world today, very demonized place, um, and where people would be called on uh, to deliver people of obvious uh, demon possession, and uh, and of course. Uh, Ephesus being the center of this kind of worship of Diana and, and all of this, it was a, a demonic stronghold, so there would be um, a great demand for exorcists. A lot of money could be made in Ephesus. And like anybody in any field, you're always looking to um, get better at it. Maybe you make a little bit more money. And what the exorcists used to do uh, is that they would... Uh, come over and come into contact with someone who was demon-possessed, 
and then they would begin to encant uh, every name of every god uh, they, uh, they would uh, call upon uh, for the removal of this demon. Uh, and if the demon didn't come out with three of the Greek or Roman gods, uh, then they would just keep piling on, piling on these names, adding all of these gods to the formula uh, to push the demon out until it was gone. That was the thing that they operated uh, under. And so here now, they, they've got uh, the, something to add here because they see these demons getting cast out uh, on the basis of the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were the seven sons of Sceva, uh, a Jewish chief priest. Uh, they were these exorcists as well. And uh, so they come here and they decided to add uh, Jesus' name to all of this long list of other names. They're using his name as a, a good luck charm, as a formula. And, uh, and so they add it now uh, to this and they got a response uh, from the evil spirit. The evil spirit said to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? You never want the devil. You don't want to talk with the devil anyway. Um, but uh, that, that can't have been good. The devil's fully aware uh, of Jesus. In fact, the, the demons at the time of, Paul, uh, of Jesus' ministry, they were more orthodox in their understanding of the deity of Jesus than the disciples were for the longest period of time. Uh, the de- there's not an atheist demon in existence. They all believe in the existence of God, and they recognize Jesus to be the Son of God. And, uh, and, and so uh, here, Jesus I know, Paul I know, because Paul was ransacking the kingdom of darkness in Ephesus. Of course the demons knew uh, his, uh, his name. But who are uh, you? And then the man in whom the evil... Uh, 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 in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and uh, prevailed against them uh, to such a degree that they then fled out of the house naked uh, and uh, wounded. So everything got uh, turned around uh, on them and, uh, and uh, teaching us. There, uh, there, there's the old saying of um, uh, never... Uh, uh, never go to a gunfight with a knife. Uh, you're going to be ill-equipped. And here, here you have, and I hope this makes me famous, never go to an exorcism without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what they endeavor to do is to uh, engage in this exorcism, use Jesus' name, but they have no relationship with him. It's just an incantation, and uh, it takes someone who is, uh, who is uh, firmly entrenched in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of light has the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives to displace a demon from a person's uh, uh, life. And even if you have others who come in and, uh, and are, are doing exorcists like they were doing, it's just kind of like the demon shuffle. So we get rid of the demon that's doing this, but then another demon of another kind comes in and takes. The only way you can uh, deliver completely and ultimately deliver a person of demon possession, that has to come from uh, God. The demon has to be cast out, and then God come into our lives and now hold our lives against that ever happening, uh, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Well, all of this happened, and of course, uh, the, the, the traveling evangelists here, they, they ran out of the house naked, they're wounded, beat up, and word of this spread all over the place, both the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and then fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So again, everybody doesn't have a Bible at home at, at this time in, in history. And so Jesus meets them on the level that they can understand. Uh, they believed in gods. 
they believed in uh, light. They believed in darkness. They believed in good. They believed in evil. They believed these things. And, uh, and, and so now the best way for them to understand that here comes Jesus, and in the name of Jesus, these demons are being cast out. And so uh, Jesus has greater authority and power than anything we're worshiping here in Ephesus. And that's going to get their attention. When you're an honest seeker and you realize, hey, a new sheriff showed up in town. And I thought I was uh, involved with the big shot. And yet he's casting the big shot out of everybody around Ephesus. He must be the greater God. And God just meets with them on, on their own level. And that light goes on for them. And they, they, a healthy fear fell upon them, and, and they magnified the name uh, of the Lord. And many who had believed came confessing and uh, telling uh, their deeds. And so people were getting saved as a result of this, confessing their sins. And also many of those who had practiced magic, a lot of magic, darkness in that uh, city, they brought their magic books, their books of spells and incantations. They brought them together and they burned them in the sight of all, right, in, in the city. And uh, it doesn't say in the sight of the Apostle Paul or anything. They just burned them openly out in the city and they counted up the value uh, of them, and it totaled uh, 50,000 pieces of uh, silver. And so uh, a piece of silver was a day's wage for a laboring man. So it would be uh, what a plumber or a carpenter would earn today over 136 years. It's a lot of money. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, they, they, burned, uh, they, they burned all of this. They burned these bridges. And burned is a strong word. That's a, um, that, that means I am, I am burning a bridge to something that I never want to have access to again uh, in my life. There's something permanent about that. And they did that. I've been raised, they've been raised in a demonic situation. Certain sins, certain influences have come over their lives. They've come into a new life as a Christian, and they say, I don't ever want to be in bondage to what I was in bondage to before, and I gave myself to that bondage. I'm burning every bridge, no matter how much it, it costs me uh, to burn every bridge to uh, sin. And, uh, and so when Paul said, uh, tells us as Christians, make no provision for the flesh. Uh, burn bridges related to that. He didn't say make no provision for the flesh unless it costs you money to get rid of those things out of your life. And, and when we repent as a part of our salvation, we become Christians, we repent of our own self-will, our own direction in life, all of the nonsense we're involved in. Now, God, my life is yours. I want your plan uh, for my life. And as a part of that, there's a repentance of sin, from sin. And there has to be that thing of, I'm not going to let this continue in my life. I'm done with that in my life. And then you do whatever you have to do to make sure you don't keep that, that door uh, open and it's important for all of our lives to to do that. Sometimes a person becomes a Christian and then they keep all of that stuff. They got a, fifteen back doors back into their old life, and who who can who can withstand the seduction of 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 the demonic realm or the the, the flesh or the world, and if those if those bridges aren't burned. It's like, no, I couldn't go back to that even if I wanted to, that, that kind of completeness. Now, you recognize that he's talking about sin here. He's not talking about liberties, Christian uh, liberties. He's talking about things where we determine when we become Christians that will, nev that will never be, a, 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 my intent is that it would never be a part of, of my life. Now, burn every bridge that could leave that as, as a temptation. And liberties are a little bit different. Those are things that aren't forbidden, but God can, uh, broadly for everybody. They're things that I can do. They're not sin, but they may not be uh, advantageous for me as a Christian. I remember when um, I became a new Christian, um, I would travel anywhere for a good basketball game. 
and, uh, and to get in to play, what gym is open, what leagues are open, what can I get involved in. I become a Christian. This is a dominant part of my life, a liberty. There is no forbidding of playing basketball in the Bible. But in the early stages in my Christian life, they were formative. God wanted me just for Himself. So to me, not everybody else in the church, He said, I want you to put that aside because I'm not going to compete with that right now. I don't want that for you. Put that aside for a time, and I want your undivided attention. He may do it to somebody uh, today where they have a video game that is not sinful to engage in, but they're on it all of the time and not growing as a result of the time investment that goes uh, into it. And God can come in and say, I know it's a liberty for you. But I'm, I'm going to ask you to take that, uh, to take that away. And, and then sometimes later on, as we become uh, mature and able to handle these liberties in our life in a responsible way, he can reintroduce them back into our lives. And so he let me play basketball again. He never let me um, dunk uh, the basketball. I could in warm-ups, but not, not in a game. And so... Um, I had hoped for more, uh, but, uh, but he did allow that to happen. And so th- there's this uh, burning of, of the bridges and, and, uh, and, and just being done with these things that, uh, that uh, should never be a part of our lives again. Now, people get freaked out when you talk about uh, book burning uh, in history because oftentimes it has led to bad things, but that is not what is happening here. And the the church did not demand it of them. Paul did not demand it uh, of them. It was voluntary. It was individual between people uh, and the conviction uh, of of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. And so God will do that uh, in our lives where he'll look and say, that's a danger to you. It's a, a great danger to you, uh, that, that sin. Uh, you, you can't just uh, uh, repent of it. You need to repent of it and burn every means of, of returning to that in your life. And uh, nothing weird about that and if, if, when that is true of our lives. And uh, it's right here in the Scriptures. And when these things were accomplished, Paul uh, purposed in the Spirit and that he, uh, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, uh, to go to Jerusalem. So he has this sense between him and the Holy Spirit that his ministry at Ephesus is over. Uh, a strong church plant has occurred there. It's a strong church. And, and that he is to return uh, uh, to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and, and Achaia, uh, through Greece and on his way to Jerusalem, saying, after I have uh, been there, Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. And so he sent into Macedonia uh, two of those who ministered to him, uh, Timothy and Erastus. There's a name. I, I like that. That's a Western name, isn't it? This is my son Erastus. That's why God never gave me a son. I'd have been tempted. I just like that name. Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So Paul knows, I'm going to leave Ephesus, and so I'm going to send these ahead of me to prepare the way. I'm going to remain there uh, in, in uh, Ephesus uh, for just a short time longer. And about that time, there arose a great commotion uh, about the way, about uh, the, the growth of Christianity there in the city of Ephesus. And, and the problem that was occurring there was communicated by a certain man named De, uh, Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Uh, and his, his, uh, his trade was to make silver shrines of Diana, and it brought no small profit to the craftsmen. They were making a great living. Uh, in, in anywhere in the world, you have tourism, a tourist destination. I mean, if you go to Paris, what are you going to see everywhere? Little Eiffel Towers that you can buy. Go to New York City, you're going to find the Statue of Liberty. I mean, people buy these things 
They bring them home. It's a remembrance for them. It provokes their memory of a good experience that they had. Well, how much more if you've done a a religious pilgrimage uh, to the city of Ephesus to worship Diana, you would want to bring something tangible back as as an expression of, of your worship of her So they would sell these uh, little uh, images of her in silver or images of of the temple. And and they made a very, very good living off of that. I mean, people, religious people will sometimes, they'll spare no expense in what they'll pay uh, to to buy uh, religious items. So he called all of his fellow workers in that occupation, uh, the silversmiths, and he said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. And so he's, he's pretty open about it. Um, his concern is that Paul's ministry there in Ephesus has begun to affect their sales. And so if you, if you ever want to, nothing, very little in life is what it appears to be. Uh, most often, just follow the money, and you'll know what the, the real reason is behind the commotion. And that's the real reason behind this commotion. We're losing money. We've made a good living this way with this trade. And moreover, you see and you hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned uh, away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Well, the audacity of that. The Apostle Paul uh, declaring that uh, you shouldn't worship anything you can make with your own hands. Because by virtue of you being able to make it, it indicates that you're greater than your creation. Why would you worship something that's lesser than you? I don't think that Paul came out with that kind of a a, a bluntness related to it. Paul comes into the city. I assume that most missionaries do this. He comes in, just begins to teach the Word, teach the Word, teach the Word. God confirms the Word with accompanying signs and wonders. People are getting saved. God is doing all of these uh, miracles uh, that are happening, getting people's attention, and all of this begins to build. Paul doesn't have to walk in in his first day in Ephesus and start slamming the worship of Diana. People get defensive when you... Uh, attack their God. I'm not saying that God wouldn't have a person do that always, but he comes in, remember, he's been there for three years, and this builds to this point. So he hasn't made her the focus at all. He just does his thing, and then God does his thing through it, and then uh, uh, Diana's taking a beating, the worship of her in, in the city. And, and so uh, here he is saying that they're not gods that are made with hands. And uh, so Paul comes to the, the, them as Gentiles. And of course, as he's going to come to them as Gentiles, by and large, he's going to come to them on the basis of creation. Behind all creation, there's a creator. Behind all design, there's a designer. The creator and the designer is always greater than the creation and the design. Don't worship the creation or nature or anything like that. Who made it? That's who you want to worship. And, and so he comes to them in that, in that way, and they got the implication of it. And not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, uh, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, uh, whom all Asia and the world worship. And so uh, the, the, um, uh, you know, the reputation of Diana, the, the, the impact of the Apostle Paul in the city with the gospel has not only affected the sales of the, the images, uh, but also uh, the worship of Diana. And so when they heard this, they were full of wrath And they cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So he works them up here emotionally on things. You'll notice that he didn't say, now listen, this Paul guy seemed to be making some good points here. And uh, I tried to poke some holes in his logic here, but I can't 
find any holes in what it is that he's saying about the worship of Jesus as the Messiah and God the Father as the, the, the Creator. And so let's, let's rent a big hall in Ephesus and let's talk about the pros and the cons of Diana against the pros and the cons of this God that Paul is, a pro, is preaching. And then let's see what kind of conclusion we can come to by an open, honest debate. That's not what they do. Uh, Cancel culture, again, as we see in the book of Acts, is not a new phenomenon. They do not want to meet Paul on that level. They want to silence Paul from preaching what it is that he preaches. So they go into this, they become filled with wrath. So they're not just chanting this, you know, and, and uh, throwing off, you know, these party things. Uh, they're mad, and great is Diana of the Ephesians, and so the whole city was filled with confusion, and uh, you can imagine the, these people running through, great is Diana of the Ephesians running through the city, people are getting uh, all uh, worked up, what in the world's going on uh, related to all of this, and so they rushed into the theater uh, there uh, in, uh, in Ephesus, I think the theater in Ephesus, it still stands. Um, and uh, it seats 25,000 people. So they begin to fill uh, this. They seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, go into their theater, address them in a rational way, and talk with them about what it is that's really going on here, what he's really preaching, the disciples uh, would not allow him. And then some of the officials of uh, Asia who were his friends uh, sent to him pleading, saying, do not go into that theater. You're going to get killed in there. This is a religious frenzy. This is not uh, 49er fans. These are Raider fans we're talking about right here. And some, therefore, they cried out in this accusation against Paul, cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them had come together in this frenzy, and they didn't know what in the world any of this was about. It's just a frenzy. Here's something new. Let's head down and, and, uh, and, and join it. And so they drew Alexander uh, out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. Alexander, he motioned with his hand. He wanted to make his defense uh, to the people to reason with them. When they found out that he was a Jew and thus not a worshiper of Diana, they have no interest in hearing his voice at all. So with one voice, they cried out uh, for about two hours, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Not for 30 seconds, not for 10 minutes, for two solid hours. That is an animal-like frenzy. That is a demonic frenzy that's going on in that theater. When's the last time, okay, I, 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 I struck out on the TV commercial. When is the last time you chanted something in rage for two straight hours. Well, it's not a part of any of our lives or anything. We have the attention span as Americans as a, of a gnat. We would never uh, invest in that, that kind of any way, thing anyway. We'd go on YouTube and, and watch uh, 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 kitten videos. I've got a thing for these cats, I'm telling you. So uh, this is just a, a dangerous frenzy that is going on, just pure emotion. And, uh, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he comes in, and, um, and it's so refreshing here because in the midst of this kind of uh, example of a cancel culture, a chance, a, a, a deliberate attempt to silence other voices for no other reason than that we want to silence those voices, and always in cancel culture, what the devil, I don't know what people are thinking, but what the devil's aim is, is to silence the Word of God. That's the ultimate, uh, where all of this lands once it gets a, a stronghold in, in a culture. Thankfully, this is ebbing back within our culture. Whew. It's close in terms of what was happening even recently. But thankfully, in the city of Ephesus, there was an adult, an elected office, who stood up and said, no, 
your numbskulls. And you're not going to do that here. I'm not going to let you violate the law of Rome like you're doing. There's a process for you to go through. Do that process or knock it off. So that's a, uh, that's a, uh, a New Living Bible uh, translation of it. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of, uh, of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? Everybody knows this. He's a very good politician uh, in, in terms of calming down a crowd. And, and of the image which fell from Zeus, which was the reputed uh, origin of the worship of Diana. And therefore, since these things cannot be denied, uh, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who were neither robbers nor, uh, of temples nor blasphemers of your uh, goddess, and therefore, if Demetrius and his uh, uh, fellow craftsmen and uh, 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 bloggers have a, a case against anyone, the courts are open and uh, there are proconsuls, judges, and let them bring their charges uh, against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, not what you're doing here. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. Rome is going to hear about uh, this. And Rome looked down on this kind of thing. Uh, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, just somebody stepping up and using his authority, uh, then he dismissed the assembly and they left. Let's stand together now and we'll close our time in prayer. While we're standing, if you're here this evening and you are not yet a Christian, never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, we'll be up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God, to be born again by the Holy Spirit. If you would like somebody to pray with you for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we'll be up here to, to do that as well. If you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we'd love to pray uh, with you and for you as well. Let's pray now. Father, thank you so much for just the broad diversity of important things that we have um, looked at tonight in your instruction to us um, from this chapter. Thank you for providing this chapter to us for our instruction. And thank you, Lord, for be us being able to study it in your presence and in your company and the work of your Holy Spirit, making changes and bringing illumination and revelation into our lives as we, we read these truths here in this passage. Thank you that you never give us your word independent of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this time that we've had this evening, worshiping you in both ways in song and in the study of your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.